we return to Romans, so I'd invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, if you're not there already. Uh, Last week, we began this study, and we need to pick up where we left off. So I need to give you a review of everywhere we've been up to this point. Paul began the letter by offering a summary of the gospel. In verses 1 through 4, he identifies the beating heart of the gospel in this way. The gospel is the royal announcement that the resurrected Jesus is the messianic king. That's the heart of the gospel. It's the gospel summary. It conveys the essence of the gospel. But then, as he progresses in this chapter, he builds on the essence of the gospel by articulating the function of the gospel. So, gospel essence summarized, and now gospel function declared in verse 16. He shows us what the gospel does. It brings salvation. Bring salvation to all people who believe. Okay, so he doesn't fully define salvation here, but in the Old Testament and in the preaching of Jesus and the apostles, the term salvation referred to rescue from pagan oppressors, release from captivity to sin, restoration of divine blessing, removal of divine judgment and the renewal of the covenantal relationship between God and humanity. So when Paul says that the gospel brings salvation, I I think he's speaking broadly, communicating all of these things, and he'll fill it out more as we get into the letter. Now, throughout history, many salvations had occurred. These things on the screen had taken place. Read through the Old Testament. Many salvation pops up time and again ranging from Israel's salvation from oppressive Egypt to Nineveh's salvation from God's impending judgment. Many salvations are everywhere that prefigure the ultimate salvation wrapped up in the birth and life and death and resurrection and ascension and future return of King Jesus. And that salvation is available for all peoples. To to receive that salvation, though, A person must respond to Jesus with faith, with what Paul calls in verse 7, the obedience of faith, and in verse 16, belief. He uses different terms. It's the same Greek term really underneath all of this. It's a little complicated. In English, we have separate words for faith and faithfulness and belief and faith, but it's all the same in Greek. Regardless of the English term that's being used, Paul repeatedly communicates that a person must respond to Jesus with faith, belief, the obedience of faith, referring to a deep conviction that leads to a lasting commitment. This deep conviction is a gift from God. None of us can conjure it up on our own. It's a gift from God, and the lasting commitment is a testament to God's faithfulness to those whom he gives the gift of faith. So you can't work faith into yourself any more than you can work righteousness or salvation into yourself. But when God works faith into you, you ought to work out your faith. You work out your salvation. That's what Paul is getting at here. It leads to a lasting commitment to Christ. We might call this faithfulness. Now, if we've been tracking with Paul, we're we're recognizing that all along the way, he's laying building blocks for everything else that's going to come. 
there's a reason the letter is 16 chapters long. It's because he's giving us a foundation and he's going to tease out the meaning of all of these building blocks. And he'll show us a fully orbed, immensely deep and beautiful picture of the gospel. And in verse 17, he gives us one other building block. He asserts that the good news about King Jesus reveals the righteousness of God in association with faith or belief. What's more, he calls us to enter into and actively participate in the righteousness of God through faith. So that's what Paul is getting at when he quotes Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous will live by faith. It's simultaneously a command and a promise and a reality. The righteous only live by faith, but they live by faith. We'll, we'll talk about this next week, okay? So last week we had to split 16 and 17. This week we're splitting 17a and b because I think it's fruitful for us to consider this Old Testament citation at length. So if you want to prepare for that, um, read Habakkuk chapter 2 because this is a citation from Habakkuk 2.4. But today, we'll expand our understanding of the gospel and God's saving mission by considering Paul's use of the term, the righteousness of God. And, and we'll track with three leading questions. First, what is the righteousness of God? Second, who needs the righteousness of God? And third, how can we participate in the righteousness of God? So we have three questions that will follow this morning. First, what is the righteousness of God? The answer to this is actually quite tricky. And if I could ask each of you to write it down, we would hear different things. Um, the Greek word rendered righteousness here is also translated justice in another place. So we're encountering all of these issues with translation. Um, in our English Bibles, the terms righteous and just are used for the same Greek word, dikaios. You don't need to remember that Greek word, you just need to remember that righteousness and just, or righteous and just, come from the same word. So determining which meaning is in view is difficult. Um, the words related to righteousness and justice appear 72 times in Romans, so these are important concepts and we need to wrestle with it if we're going to understand the letter. Now, to simplify things, to show you how this works, I want to appeal to a familiar verse, 1 John 1, 9, to show you the difficulty we're facing. If you're reading in the English Standard verse, Version of 1 John 1, 9, you would read this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if you're reading in the Christian Standard Bible, you would read, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So do you see how these terms just and righteous are related? They're the same in Greek, and we have to use context to determine which one is in view. Now, this is not a translational philosophy issue, okay? Uh, the ESV, King James Version, NIV, and NRSV all prefer the top option, while the CSB, NASB, NET, and NLT all prefer the bottom option. It's not a translation philosophy issue. It's just genuinely one of those difficulties that comes with translation. Now, we need to keep that in mind, um, especially when it 
comes to describing the meaning of the righteousness of God or the justness of God. I want to propose that that phrase, the righteousness of God, has at least five related meanings. And when we encounter that phrase, we need to filter through these five meanings and try to figure which one or which ones, plural, are in view. Okay, number one, an attribute of God. The righteousness of God can refer to an attribute of God relating to his uprightness. In this sense, it refers to his own inherent inherent rightness, his moral upstanding, his internal justice. So it has to do with his character, and it distinguishes the God of the Bible from the gods of Greek mythology in the ancient Near East. This attribute makes God a different kind of God. Second, the righteousness of God can refer to God's covenant faithfulness, in which God acts rightly towards his people in accordance with his covenant promises. So his covenant faithfulness finds expression in his commitment to sustaining the blessings associated with the covenant promises, as well as his commitment to execute the curses associated with covenant violation. So God's covenantal faithfulness, his righteousness works out in both ways. It brings about blessing, but it also brings about judgment. Now, this aspect of the righteousness of God is especially present in relational or covenantal contexts, as it does in Romans frequently. Third, the righteousness of God can refer to the just acts and judgments of God that rectify injustice, reconcile broken relationships, repair what is damaged, revitalize decay, and restore what was lost. So this facet of God's righteousness is present especially in societal or judicial context. It's the just acts and judgment of God. Fourth, the righteousness of God can refer to a legal declaration. He can declare someone or something to have right standing. This meaning has a judicial or legal, sometimes called a forensic righteousness connotation. And it creates the picture of someone standing in the right before God. This right standing cannot be earned. But it can be given by God as an act of mercy and a declaration of pardon despite that person's sinful activity. This legal declaration is especially connected to Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice and it provides a deep well of hope and confidence for Christians, as it should, because we all recognize our sinfulness, so there's deep hope in knowing that God declares us righteous on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. Fifth, it refers to moral transformation. The righteousness of God can refer to the effective impartation of righteousness and moral upstanding that's given to a person. So God gives this righteousness as a gift that spawns new life. We sometimes call that regeneration. And it produces moral transformation. We sometimes call that sanctification. But these are both aspects of the righteousness of God at work in a person. This meaning creates a picture of someone who is being made righteous before God. Someone who is being made fit to live with God. 
Now, this gift of righteousness can come from God alone. That's why we sometimes refer to it as an alien righteousness. It's external. It's from outside of us. It's only from God. No human can possess it or create it. That gifting deconstructs every works-based religious system, and it removes every right to boast in our moral transformation. We can't do it on our own. Now, what I want to be clear about is that moral transformation aspect and the legal declaration aspect are really closely related. I want to suggest that they can't be separated. So the declaration of righteousness accomplishes what was spoken. When God declares you righteous, his word does not return void. It actually begins to make you righteous. It spawns a new creation in your life. So the declaration, we could say, imparts righteousness. So to distinguish between the legal declaration and the moral transformation, we sometimes talk about the legal declaration as your positional righteousness, your standing before God, and the moral transformation as your practical righteousness, the outworking of your righteousness before God. And keep these things in mind, because we'll return to this later, because one of the biggest errors when it comes to understanding God's righteousness is splitting legal declaration and moral transformation. Now, as you can see, these five definitions, though distinct, are really closely related, and as I'm suggesting, in some cases, they're inseparable. So perhaps it would be helpful to think of these five facets of God's righteousness, the righteousness of God, as as facets of a diamond. So if you're, if you're a married woman here and you have a diamond ring on, you can see the different facets. They're distinct, but they're inseparable, and they share the same essence. I want to suggest that these different facets of the righteousness of God are similar. Now, unfortunately, we don't have the same language convention conventions as the the Greek-speaking world did. So we don't have one term that can capture all of these. Instead, we have word groups like just, justice, and justification, and justified, and words like right and righteous. It's too bad we don't have words like righteousified and righteousification, because we make justification do double duty uh, in connection to just and righteous. We need to use words maybe to help us think about this like righteousification. And I'm going to do that. I know there's no spelling check that will approve of that word, but I think it will be helpful as we try to connect these concepts. In Romans 1.17, Paul uses the phrase the righteousness of God in a broad general sense. And I think we need to avoid narrowing down the meaning of the righteousness of God to just one aspect of the five that I communicated. The full-orbed righteousness of God is communicated in the gospel, particularly in the person of Jesus Christ. This broader meaning of the righteousness of God, then, overlaps with the meaning of salvation, and together the two terms depict things as they should be. They communicate a reality where life is just right. So we sometimes use the term righteousness in this way. Okay, so in college I had this three-month stint working at a Taco Bell with this pot-smoking guy who anytime I perfectly wrapped a Crunchwrap Supreme would say something like, 
that's righteous, dude. And, and I think he had probably been watching too much of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure or something. But anytime we executed an order just right, or we got the thing perfect, he would say in that pot smoker voice, that's righteous, dude. He, he got that righteous, communicated things just right. Things as they should be. And the gospel creates the way for things to become just right. So he was speaking more truly than he knew. The concept of righteousness communicates a just rightness, and as it should be, a that's perfect. The righteousness of God that accompanies salvation is the ultimate source of life that is just right. It's behind the oughtness, the just rightness, or the very goodness of creation as described in Genesis 1 and 2. It's the just rightness that was forfeited by Adam and Eve's rebellion and replaced with sin and injustice and unrighteousness. So through Adam, the oughtness, the just rightness, the very goodness, the righteousness of God was lost. But the Bible is telling a story of a God who progressively works to make things just right again. Paul asserts here that God's setting of things right reached a pivotal point in Jesus. It reached its climactic height in the coming of Jesus, who is the demonstration of God's righteousness. So Jesus, Paul is arguing, is the full display of the righteousness of God in the only way that the setting of things back to right can be happening. A restoration to rightness can only happen through Jesus. And through the Jesus communicated in the gospel. That's what Paul's trying to tell us here. Jesus is the embodiment of God's righteousness, the very righteousness of God. And the biblical authors refer to Jesus in this way over and over again. I want to just point out two instances, and providentially you already heard one of them this morning. The first is when Paul is recounting his testimony after seeing the risen Christ and having a conversation with him. Um, when Ananias explains this, what happened there, he said, the God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the words from his mouth, since you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. So it's no surprise that in Romans 1.17b, what we'll look at next week, when Paul says, the righteous will live by faith, he is saying the righteous one will live by faith, and he did in his resurrection. And therefore, that reality becomes true for the rest of us who can become righteous ones through Jesus. But then second, um, in Romans, Paul clearly articulates this. In Romans 3.26, he says that God presented him, Christ Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just slash righteous, and justify slash righteousify the one who has faith in Jesus. So the righteous one, Jesus, makes righteousness available for humanity again. Where Adam lost just rightness, righteousness, through sin and death, Jesus brought righteousness and life back. So to return to our analogy of the multifaceted diamond, we could think of Jesus, the righteous one, like a ring 
that displays the righteousness of God and makes it possible for humanity to take on the righteousness of God, to wear it. Jesus makes the righteousness of God accessible again. We can put it on or wear it. We can experience oughtness, the goodness of creation, the righteousness of God, things as they should be because of Jesus in his incarnation and resurrection. Okay, so that's my short edition of explaining the righteousness of God in Romans. Uh, So keep that in mind. But that raises the question, well, who really needs the righteousness of God? Now, you can probably guess what I'm going to say here. I'm going to suggest that everyone needs the righteousness of God because no one is righteous and no one can establish or create rightness or righteousness on their own. So Paul makes this point throughout Romans. I won't belabor it here, but I'll just give you a preview of where Paul is going. In Romans 3.23, Paul adamantly asserts there is no one righteous, not even one. And then in Romans 10.3, he pushes back against anyone who thinks that they can create their own rightness in this world. He writes, since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. So everyone needs the righteousness of God. Grasping that multifaceted definition of the righteousness of God and recognizing that all of us need that whole bit of the righteousness of God is important because you and I and everyone on planet Earth are tempted to substitute our own conceptions of righteousness and pursue them instead. We call this trying to justify our actions and to justify the way we live. So what we try to do is we create our own vision of just rightness, and then we pursue it in whatever way we want. Now, there was a time, maybe, I think, in the United States where you could communicate this to the average person on the street, and they would recognize that they needed God's righteousness. I would suggest that our day now which is probably somewhat like Paul's day then, in our day, when people are confronted with the reality of their unrighteousness, their response will not be, you're right, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I think this is what's more common. It would go something like this. God's so-called righteous standards are arbitrary and merely a social construct that should be deconstructed so that we can reconstruct a morality fit for modernity. We need a different picture of righteousness. And as an ever-evolving autonomous individual, I have both the authority and capacity to do just that. I think that's the response when people are told of their need for God's righteousness. The response is, no, I can create the world as I think it needs to be. So even though God's righteousness, emphasis on God's righteousness, might be rejected in our culture, every single person is pretty aware that the broader sense of righteousness, life being just right, is absent. 
we're all pretty much aware of our need for a return to a different kind of rightness. It doesn't take us long to realize that life is not just right, that things aren't as they ought to be. And we know that the problem isn't just outside of us in our environment, it's also inside of us. Because regardless of the different job that we take or the different state that we live in or the different spouse that we marry after divorcing the first one, we take ourselves with us wherever we go and we, we sense that the not-rightness is in us and outside of us. Everybody knows that. Everybody feels that. So in response, this is, this is a human way of responding to the awareness of not-rightness. We construct our own images of righteousness. We paint our own picture of what needs to happen or change to make things just right. So we try to remove whatever is toxic from our lives, and we try to add whatever is, quote-unquote, life-giving, as we try to secure financial security and health and well-being and self-improvement and work-life balance or whatever else we would paint into our picture of just rightness. The way we do this, often, is by putting faith in political systems, in public policy and programs, in a particular philosophical movement, in a life coach or in a technology or whatever else it might be. We find a system or a structure that we think will get us to our picture of righteousness. And all along the way, we find ourselves going deeper and deeper into brokenness and dissatisfaction, and we have a painful awareness of the absence of oughtness. I, I think that would be your experience, even if you would say, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I think many of us get distracted from God's righteousifying mission, his missions to set things right in this world, and we look away from Jesus and try to bring about an alternative edition of righteousness instead. But when we feel the brokenness and the ineffectiveness of those methods, we're actually receiving a gift of God's grace to us. It's actually God's kindness that makes us aware that we cannot construct our own righteousness and that we cannot set things right ourselves. It's a gift God makes us aware of the brokenness that we're in because it draws us to Jesus who offers the kind of rightness that we actually need. More than that, he calls us to participate in this rightness, in the righteousness of God through faith. So I'd ask you, what vision of rightness are you pursuing? And how's that working for you? And if it's not working, you might need to think about whether you've turned your attention away from Jesus and his picture of righteousness to a false picture of righteousness. But if it's true that Jesus invites us into the righteousness of God, we need to ask a third question. How can I participate in the righteousness of God? So Paul's urging his readers to participate in or receive the righteousness of God. How, how can that happen? Paul wants to show us 
that the righteousness of God can only be entered into, received, participated in through faith. So Paul explains that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, I don't like that translation. I think from faith for faith is a better translation. Skim all of the available translations that you love, and it's about, you know, maybe an even split. This is what I'm trying to say. I take the expression from faith for faith to mean that the righteousness of God is revealed from Jesus' faith for our faith. That is, the righteousness of God is both demonstrated and made available through the faith of Jesus Christ. His life of faith, what we might call the faithfulness of Christ, demonstrates what it looks like to live and embody God's righteousness. More than that, his life of faith makes it possible for us to follow him in that same path of faith into the righteousness of God. It's from faith for faith. It's by faith through and through. Now, some of Paul's readers would not have liked to hear that line. Some of Paul's readers would have pushed back against that because they were convinced that the way to participate in God's righteousness was by maintaining the old covenant stipulations, especially circumcision. So they would have said, no, the, the Torah is the revelation of the righteousness of God, and participation in the righteousness of God is adherence to the old covenant stipulations. But Paul is saying Jesus is the demonstration of the righteousness of God, and it's only by adherence to him that you can participate in the righteousness of God. For a time, Torah did display the righteousness of God, but in Christ, And in a new and better covenant, the righteousness of God is more fully and thickly displayed. And for that reason, his readers needed to commit themselves to Jesus to participate in the righteousness of God. And so do we. Now, I I want to suggest that there are two popular errors that we could be prone to make when it comes to participating in the righteousness of God. The first error is to claim that salvation involves only one aspect of justification. So by isolating one individual aspect from that list of five that I gave you and excluding the rest, we rob the atoning work of Jesus from its comprehensive accomplishment. So for let me give you one example of situations where just one of the five is isolated. Some editions of Christianity make it sound like the heart of the gospel is receiving a not guilty declaration from God and that God's declaration doesn't need to accomplish what it declares. It doesn't bring about a righteousifying or a moral transformation. So for these, justification is a legal fiction, and that's all that salvation means. So when Christians make this error, they end up leading people to have a false confidence that they can receive a right standing from God without ever participating in the righteousness of God imparted to a person. So the result then are bizarre systems of sanctification that emphasize a deeper life where you need to make a secondary and separate commitment of dedicating your life to Christ following your salvation. Or that you need to receive spirit baptism as a separate and secondary act following your justification. 
Now, one of those is the charismatic Pentecostal error. The other is more of an evangelical error. But both of them say you can get saved, rightly declared before God, without actually being changed. Just say the prayer and you're good. And hopefully someday you'll dedicate your life to Christ and make him your Lord and King as well. That's not the gospel. That's an isolation of one piece of the gospel, and it produces a deformed and distorted Christianity. God offers the whole of his righteousness in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Being a Christian is not just about gaining a legal status, but an all-of-life participation in the all-encompassing righteousness of God. It includes a legal declaration, but it goes far beyond that. It can't stop there. It involves drawing you through the covenantal promises into the life of the triune God. And when this is at its fullness, we call it eternal life. To be a Christian includes a declaration of righteousness and the gift of righteousness that leads to progressively increased moral transformation into the image of Christ and participation in the righteousifying mission of God in community with others who are being made righteous before God. So that's just one example of situations where people isolate one aspect of God's righteousness and say, that's your salvation. That's the gospel. The gospel's bigger than that, so we need to avoid um, itemizing the righteousness of God in finding the lowest common denominator. But there's a second error, and that's the error of misdirecting our faith. So the first error, you're heading in the right direction, but you're not going far enough. The second error, you've, you've veered off into the wrong direction by misdirecting your faith. This error is especially common among Roman Catholics, though Protestants are also susceptible to it just in a kind of different way. Now, I recently watched a video of the Pope teaching on a passage in Galatians about justification, and he adamantly declared that justification comes through grace. Because sinners have been declared righteous by God, they are justified. Almost every Protestant I know, if those words came out of John Piper's mouth instead of Pope, the Pope's mouth, they would have said, Amen. But beneath those agreeable words is the error of misdirected faith. Now, I'm going to paint with broad strokes here because contrary to many Protestants thinking, the Roman Catholic Church is not unified in its belief. So this might not be true of every Roman Catholic you meet. But broadly speaking, the Roman Catholic Church sees itself as the storehouse of God's grace and teaches that the way for a person to tap into God's grace is through connection to the Roman Church and participation in the sacraments, particularly in the dominical sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist. So in the Roman Catholic understanding, these two sacraments offered by the church convey the saving grace of God and therefore give you access to the righteousness of God. So do you see the difference here? It's misdirected from Jesus who offers you saving grace, righteousness, to the church that gives you a meal where you can access that grace. So instead of considering the Eucharist and baptism means of communicating sustaining grace, that's the majority Protestant view, the, the table doesn't save you, but it's 
one of the means and an important means of the way that God sustains you in your faith, they suggest that it communicates saving grace. It's misdirected. Many Roman Catholics do not lack a faith commitment. And it's unfair of us to tell them that, you know, to accuse them that they're working for their salvation or something like that. Most Roman Catholics that I know are not working for their salvation. They have committed an almost bigger error of feeling secure through a misdirected faith. That misdirection of faith is not that different than the Jews who Paul was writing to who misdirected their faith to Torah and circumcision instead of leaning on Jesus. Well, the errors of isolating an aspect of God's righteousness or of misdirecting faith to a different source of righteousness oddly are marked by both legalism and antinomianism. This is how. They're marked by legalism because they transform the message about God's righteousness from a covenantal promise into a contractual provision. So here's the the evangelical Protestant way of doing it. If I do blank, for example, if I say the prayer at the back of the tract, then I receive the legal declaration of righteousness God owes me. I earned it. I said the prayer. For these Protestants, their faith has been misdirected from Jesus to prayer. Some Roman Catholics fill the blank in this way. If I receive the sacraments, I'll be declared righteous, and I need to keep receiving the sacraments so the declaration keeps coming. And God owes me, I earned it. For these Catholics, their faith has been misdirected from Jesus to the sacrament. And both are marked by an antinomianism, That says, if I just do this one thing, then I can ignore Christ's commands. I don't actually need to follow him or live and walk in his ways. Both of them suffocate the moral aspect of God's righteousness. We need to commit ourselves to the one way of tapping into God's grace and receiving his righteousness, and that is through Jesus. The only way to tie into God's righteousness is through faith in Christ. Remember, the biblical authors use that term faith to communicate a deep conviction that leads to a lasting commitment. It's a glue that connects us to Jesus and that causes us to find our life in him. When we talk about faith in Jesus, we mean that deep conviction that Jesus is our only way to God, our only way to participate in the righteousness of God. It's a deep commitment to relying on Jesus as the only solution to the wrongness of the world. It's a belief that the world can only be set right through him. And it's a conviction that leads us to respond to him, following him, obeying his command, living a life of faithfulness, hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God. So none of us should ask the question, how can I earn God's declaration of righteousness? Or, how can I conjure up righteousness on my own? Instead, we have to ask, how can I participate in God's righteousness? And the answer is through a faith connection to Jesus. Only by entrusting yourself to him. So every one of us needs to consider this message. And every one of us needs to respond appropriately. First, 
every one of us must recognize our need for the righteousness of God in the salvation that comes through Jesus alone. None of us are righteous and none of us can set things right through our own doing. Second, you must reject all substitute visions of righteousness and respond to Jesus with the obedience of faith. No other picture of life just right and no other way of getting there will do. What we call the rejection of all substitute visions of righteousness and all other ways of getting there, here's the biblical term, we call that repentance. Turning away from all other visions and seeking Christ alone. We must connect ourselves to Jesus through faith. Finally, regardless of where you are in your Christian life, you are perpetually called to renew your commitment to seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not seeking first your own kingdom and whatever vision of righteousness is being sold to you. We're called to commit to participating in the righteousifying mission of God. And though many of us can identify a moment of conversion, we must never separate conversion and discipleship in a way that we conclude that past moment is definitive for our Christian identity. We put our hand to the plow and we don't look back. We stay connected to Jesus for all of life in every aspect of life, pressing forward, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And we can do that with boldness, even when we fail, because we've been declared righteous by the Father because of Christ. We know that because of our connection to the faithfulness of Christ, we will not fail to receive the righteousness and kingdom of God. So let's leave committing ourselves to Jesus, who alone will set us in the world right. Father, we thank you for giving us a way to tie into your righteousness. We confess that we regularly pursue our own visions of righteousness, and often we even try to pursue your righteousness apart from Christ. We pray that you would cause us to give up on all of those empty endeavors and instead find our life and hope and being and righteousness in Christ alone. Would you do that for every person here? In Christ we pray. Amen.